So welcome to this part of our Commerce Evolution series. This is a key innovation block here at Avery. We think commerce is evolving in a big way, everything from digital to physical. However, physical is often left behind, right? People don't really talk about what's happening in the physical world as much as they are talking about what's happening in the digital world. So today we wanted to bring on Ethan from Placer AI. They calculate and, and provide insights into foot traffic. And they're one of the best out there. We wanted to bring Ethan on to help us gauge and dissect what's happening in that space. So please enjoy this series. All right, so we're here with uh, Ethan Chernovsky. He is the VP at Placer AI. If you don't know Placer AI, they were one of the more instrumental companies during the dark days of COVID. They do everything from foot traffic analytics. Uh, and he'll tell more about what they do, exactly how they do it uh, and who they serve. But at the end of the day, what we wanted to figure out was what's happening in the commerce landscape. And a lot of the buzz is around digital and internet selling, but the reality is roughly 80% of commerce still uh, takes place in the physical world. And we think post-COVID, uh, that will continue. Uh, we've gone from 5% uh, e-commerce sales to, again, 21 22% uh, e-commerce sales as of today. And again, what we wanted to do was look at what's evolving within the commerce landscape. Commerce evolution is one of our innovation blocks. So we're happy to have Ethan here with us to talk about uh, everything in, in the physical world. So how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about Placer, yourself, kind of what's intriguing there, what you guys are doing, all the good stuff. Sure. So, so Placer is a location analytics company. And what that essentially means is if you think people vote with their feet, we're showing you how people vote across the United States every single day. Uh, we look at a panel of about 30 million devices we use AI and machine learning on top of that to make estimations on what's happening to any location anywhere in the country. Uh, critically, it's all anonymized aggregate data. So we are GDPR and CCPA compliant. Uh, it's all about those macro trends. And then how do you kind of apply those uh, to specific use cases across kind of commercial real estate, retail, the investment community and more. Got it. And, and typically what kind of, uh, who are your customers? So every, I mean, I'd say uh, the biggest piece of our customer base is in that commercial real estate segment. But, you know, so think about the biggest shopping center owners in the country, uh, but then everyone, the biggest brokerages, uh, top retailers, even CPG companies and the investors and investors are like a big piece. And I think it's all realizing that there's so much going on offline and it's so opaque and difficult to understand what's really happening that when you can provide visibility, you can actually enable a tremendous amount of different types of business decisions and better business decisions than were made before. Yeah, we just had this conversation offline. And, and again, the, the type of information you have, um, if you're not using something like this, I, I think you're, you're essentially lost, right? You're just waiting for quarterly earnings to, to, to take place. And, and again, when, when you go back to how we were looking at your platform during the darkest days of COVID, and, and thankfully we were looking at it just prior to understand kind of some of the information you guys were, were generating, um, it, it was obvious. I mean, it is obvious that uh, some of the information was super relevant, but I, I guess from your lens, uh, let's just take a step back and, and maybe just pivot to today. We all know what happened during COVID lockdowns, couldn't go here, couldn't go there. Um, but today, when you fast forward, I guess, almost a year now, um, what are you seeing in the retail landscape, in the physical world, and, and maybe kind of how that's joining forces with the, the digital world? So I think I think the kind of your end point there is exactly 
where retail is when you think about it as a whole. And I, you know, it, you think of uh, the, the, the changes and obviously everything was very dramatic during COVID, but even in like kind of the post COVID world or the pre COVID world, there were really interesting things happening in major shifts. And we were constantly kind of analyzing those to understand what's really happening. What does it mean? Who does it affect? Who does it provide opportunities for or, or kind of obstacles for? When you think of the, the post-COVID world, when oh, retail overall, I think what's become incredibly clear is that it's obviously going to be rooted in offline. That doesn't mean that online is not going to continue to grow in importance, but it means that it's going to center around offline retail. And that's going to actually, in my mind, increase. And the reason is, is, for, is importantly, like a few things happening simultaneously. So the first is the types of brands that are actually expanding offline everything from product companies like, you know, product oriented companies like Nike, who's cutting wholesale contracts in order to open up more kind of locations of their own or to kind of sell on their own online direct to consumers opposed to through Amazon, to uh, direct to consumer companies like, you know, the Everlanes and Warby Parkers of the world, to, you know, uh, you know, name your pick of like these companies that are expanding. There's a, there's a lot of values to offline that they can't get online. And you think even the most extremely direct to consumer company, what they're finding is that if they can maximize their offline presence, it's doing a lot of things beyond just a place to sell. So it's marketing value, it's distribution and cutting that last mile delivery cost. It's cutting the cost of returns, which can be 30% in the apparel space. So there's these massive extra costs that being online only incurs, which make it kind of to take kind of the Everlane CEO's own words, it makes it impossible to be profitable but and scale. And so if you recognize that offline is a key element to having scale and profitability, then it's going to become a bigger piece of the puzzle for more brands. And online is generally just reinforcing the importance of offline while offline is you know, usually giving more value to online as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I think we saw that. I mean, if you, if you look back in 2020 and, and even today, what were some standouts? Um, that you believe kind of uh, utilized, I guess, their physical presence better than than others? So I think there's the ones that are like easy. So like the Home Depots and Lowe's of the world, you know, the mix of being essential retail early on uh, provide kind of this DIY mentality when we were all stuck at home. They are clearly brands that did extremely well. But I think there's others that, you know, even if the growth wasn't there, they, they outperformed, so to speak. And so uh, athleisure and athletic wear brands did extremely well looking at Under Armour and their kind of bounce back after a really rough 2018, 2019, uh, sure. coming back the way they did is, is super impressive, but I think it's all about kind of riding trends. And this is maybe the most important element of the data when you're looking at it from like the retail perspective is who's well aligned with how the world is moving. How do you kind of measure the, the extent of those trends? So take something like kind of this home improvement, home furnishings surge, right? Is it going to continue? I mean, if you would have asked me, I would have said after the summer, there's no chance that these guys continue to show 10, 15, 20% year over year growth on a monthly basis deep into the winter. And yet they did, right? So having your finger on the pulse of the extent of those trends is really key because at some point it's going to end or we think it'll normalize somewhat. And understanding when those things happen is critical. You mean, think of another uh, big COVID trend of like mission-driven shopping. So I'm going to go to less stores and spend more on each visit. 
is that going to continue? Because if it continues for a lot longer, every grocery brand is going to crush. Walmart's going to continue to destroy. Target's going to continue to destroy. And niche brands are going to struggle uh, you know, as they try to fill in that void. But if that balances out, which retailers are actually strong enough to cope with that kind of bounce back? Who's positioning themselves well for that next version? These are the types of questions that we're constantly trying to ask to see what, when we look at the data, what does it show us? And how does that give us an ability to understand where the world is today versus where it was and where it could potentially be going? Got it. Yeah. No, we, um, when we look at some of the, the landscape, obviously you see some of the, whether it's fitness, whether it's um, home improvement, we saw obviously Wayfair in the digital world, right? I mean, this is a pure digital brand. Um, prior to COVID, built out their own delivery network, which allowed them to ship and, and kind of get big, large packages at scale uh, to your household without some of the problems that large scale tends to, to come with, which is cost, which is broken goods on delivery through third-party delivery services. And, but at the same time, you saw the success in the physical kind of uh, 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 furniture or, and or just kind of the Home Depots of the world uh, succeed as well. Now, a lot of this we think was predicated on the back of their adoption of uh, digital prior to COVID, which allowed them to really spark and unlock kind of that digital footprint and, and then connect digital to physical. Now, when we shift to maybe other categories like electronics, I think one standout for us was was Best Buy. Um, Best Buy was in, in, incredible. I mean, they were doing a good job prior. I think the, their benefit or to their benefit is, is their category was kind of uh, under pressure five years ago. Um, and they had to go through the worst of, of this and adopt and, and kind of adapt to uh, the competition of Amazon at the time. And that forced them to be a digital native product category. But again, what really shined during COVID was, was seemed to be their, their pickup. Um, and you, got, you probably saw this plenty from your data. What did you see uh, within this category in general? And then also, uh, I think they're the lone wolf really, but uh, within electronics uh, in the physical world, what did you see at Best Buy and, and maybe some other uh, details you want to share? So Best Buy is super interesting. I think for a few reasons, the thing that really caught our eye was if you look at the early stages of the recovery, so like May, they opened up, but they opened up to appointment only. And appointment only is super interesting because A, it's digitally oriented for an offline push. Hmm. B, it's, it says, hey, we know offline has really high conversion rates, but now imagine what happens if you book the time in advance and you actually show up, right? Conversion rates are probably even higher. Um, it also says, it, to me, it, it, it speaks to this idea of like, how do we personalize the interaction and leverage the values of offline? And then when they did open up, like visits spiked to like almost 2019 levels almost immediately. And if you actually look at their January data, we just put out a post of like our, you know, fast starts, like yeah, I think it was six or seven brands that like just crushed January and what that means moving forward. And Best Buy was one of them. Hmm. And I think it's because they understand that online value brings offline value, offline value brings online value. And it's all about how do we leverage these assets together to tr- provide something more effective. So you know, think about a sector that's less, you know, or, or has taken more of a hit, let's say uh, apparel. If I'm a high-end apparel brand from like a Bloomingdale's to, you know, anyone else across the space, the idea of doing appointment shopping is, is it's obvious. Like sure. this should be clear to you on the Bloomingdale's website. It should say, Hey, do you want to meet with one of our purple personal shoppers on Tuesday afternoon at 2 PM when it's not their high period anyway? And they're not seeing the normal rush and I can provide this better experience, hope maybe increase basket size, increase the likelihood of conversion. 
these are the opportunities that avail themselves today. And I think what's interesting is that that's a Best Buy play, but it can work in apparel and it can work in you know, automotive and it can work in you know, a whole variety of other sectors. I think that's what's super exciting when you think about data sets that are like, in theory, they're agnostic of what they're looking at. It's just, or do you happen to be offline? That's where I think there's really amazing ideas for how do we, how do we kind of come up with our next innovative concept that's going to change the game for us? Yeah, no, we heard that uh, in the luxury space, uh, clientele, they would call it. Um, and I know a couple of uh, brands that were sending literally buses down kind of the Hamptons streets uh, with closets full of, of goods and essentially showing up in clientele and kind of throwing a, a dozen heels on your, your table and giving kind of first class service. And it, it is an interesting concept because it, it gives you an attachment to that brand like you never had before. Um, and it truly 100%. makes it, yeah, a, a deeper brand and a relationship with it. Um, one brand in the digital world that's doing that, which is kind of uh, superseding, let's just say the Macy's of the world, is like a stitch fix, which everything they do is personalized, uh, but in a digital form. So w- when I take stitch fix, uh, I guess just continuing on the conversation is, let's talk about the mall then. Let's talk about the big department stores. What are you seeing there? Like for Placer's point of view, what happens to the mall uh, in, in 20 whatever, 2025, um, whatever time frame you want to do. But like, what's, what's, what's the view there for over the last kind of 12, 18 months? Has it changed? Has it stayed the same? So you, t- you touch on two of my favorite topics currently, which one is the mall and the other is the department store. And so starting with the mall, like, I, I don't think we could be any more bullish. And there's a few reasons, right? The first is if you look at kind of that A-class mall, so the top tier malls, the big ones that are driving usually very- Any more bullish, any more bullish. Yeah, yeah any more bullish. Everybody, um, everyone's got to hear that. that. <laughs> and then, uh, and, and there's a few reasons, right? Reason number one is if you look pre-COVID, they were crushing. Like we had, we did an index looking at, I think it was 30 to 40 top malls around the country. And they were up significantly year over year in January and February. February boosted a little bit by the extra day, but still. Um, and then now they're recovering at a really healthy rate. And so that class, I think when you talk to most people, they feel good about it. And I think there's reasons to feel even better when you think office and residential being added into the mix of what that means for the ability to change kind of your tenant mix. So like all of a sudden gyms really make sense in a mall and bring repeat visitors in those off-peak times during the middle of the week and those off-peak hours in the kind of the early part of the day. It's a really exciting shift. But I think when you take that down to places where I think people are a little bit more like, oh, what's going to happen of those B and C class malls, I would argue there's a really exciting opportunity. The question is who's going to take advantage of it? Hmm. And that exciting opportunity is a mall is just a box, right? It's not doesn't have to be a department store and a, another retail store and a food court that has the same brands you'd expect. It can be completely reimagined. So if you think of a brand like Industrious, which is putting co-working spaces into malls, right? What does that do? It, it brings in an audience that's going to come in four or five days a week. It brings in an audience that's going to be there eight, nine hours a day, maybe more. It allows you to then rethink tenant mix. So all of a sudden, could a staples format work in a mall setting? Yeah, why not? Could a grocery setting work where like, hey, this is a grocery format that has like ready prepared meals or, you know, drinks and stuff like that that you're going to need if you're working there all day. Yeah, I actually think makes a lot of sense. Think about the idea of like the Aspen Dentals of the world who are going into shopping centers or malls, schools in malls. Like this allows you to reimagine the space and create something that's far more complementary. And the last piece of the mix for us that's really important is this rise of direct-to-consumer, product-oriented companies. So everything from like Nike to Everlane. And a lot of these brands are expanding, but they're not going to be as expanded 
as a Sears, a Macy's, et cetera, which means there'll be a limited supply. If there's a limited supply, that means there'll be more diversity within the mall mix. If there's more diversity within the mall mix, it means not all malls are competing directly. Because right now, if you and I decide, you know, we're going to go hang out, let's go meet at the mall on Sunday, we're choosing which mall to go to. Then it's kind of this one that provides this range of things or this one that provides that same range. If all malls are different, there's no reason for you to go to one one weekend and another the next weekend. And then you add to the fact of this suburban shift where like people are moving out of cities into the suburban context, there might not be a better format to, to, to fill that kind of what's missing piece as people move to the suburbs than the mall if they embrace it. I think this combination of factors is going to position, not everyone is going to do well, obviously, and some are sure. gonna get left behind, but they're going to be mall owners and brands that oriented towards malls that are gonna ride this wave to really significant success. Interesting. Yeah. Are people having those conversations today? Yeah, hundred percent. Okay. Cool. I think we, we think that this, this industry is much more outdated than it is. We just had, you know, uh, you know, a gentleman on our, on one of our webinars talking about the use of technology, the use of micro fulfillment to improve distribution. This is the type of thinking that's attracting brands, right. And saying, Ooh, you know, this is the value I can get out of the space. And when you have that type of thinking in the, in the mall, which I mean, as, as, however bad someone wants to make it out, it's still a, a kind of a hallmark of the retail experience in America. I, I think you have a huge opportunity there and it's so, someone's going to take advantage of the question is just who. Yeah, we saw, we saw or heard a uh, pretty enthusiastic uh, Simon Property Group uh, last week or the week before during their earnings, um, which to many was a, a little, um, I wouldn't say confusing, but uh, just simply... Um, encouraging, I guess, is probably the, the better word. Um, you know, what's interesting is when you look at like a, the Macy's uh, of the world, they actually have a really strong digital presence. So, so again, going from physical to digital, I mean, Macy's is one of the top 10 kind of uh, commerce apps out there in, in kind of retail and, and uh, their categories that they, they fill in, um, which is really interesting. And, and the, the amount of sales that go through it, I think, puts them in the top five. Uh, of sales that go through their platform digitally. Um, so you think of potentially, again, reducing maybe the footprint glo- or nationally, but also uh, being able to embrace kind of this omni-channel approach, which is the core concept in, in generally everything we do. Um, uh, we think everything, whether it's computing to, to retail to anything, uh, kind of the hybrid approach is always better uh, as opposed yeah. to an extreme in either direction. Now, kind of shifting gears slightly to fitness. Um, and let's talk about fitness. I think one of the stars of 2020 and today has been Peloton in the uh, digital, I guess, world, but also physical because the product is shipped to your house and it is a physical product. Um, now, the kind of key data point that we know is you take a company like Planet Fitness, where when we look at app downloads for Planet Fitness versus Peloton, Planet Fitness is traditionally a physical brand. Uh, It is a physical brand, right? You go to the gym and it's kind of the low cost provider, Walmart of fitness. Um, And then you have Peloton, which is essentially a a digital play. In 2020, App Store downloads um, for Planet Fitness were roughly 5.5 million um, compared to 3.8 for Peloton. Um, An interesting concept when you step back and think about it in that context, uh, where you're talking about a digital versus physical, but the physical out downloaded the, the digital native, um, what are you seeing in the physical world of, of fitness? I know my gym, uh, near me, uh, my home went under, uh, that location specifically. 
Um, I shifted to another gym, which was a, a more niche boutique uh, that was was deemed essential. And um, yeah, I think the physical fitness landscape is going to continue and, and probably thrive um, a decade from now. What is Placer? What's your thoughts individually and kind of just share? You're giving me my favorites. I love it. So they were, <laughs> Planet Fitness was one of our, another one of our winners for the year. And like, I think there's a few things they have going for them. One, this, this concept of kind of the Walmart of fitness is they're, they're a cheaper option in a time where there's economic uncertainty. So if I'm a little bit more sensitive about how much money I want to spend, that's a great place to, to maybe go and spend it and find a tremendous amount of value. And we need to remember that the economic effects of COVID are going to outlast COVID itself by a long way. The second piece I think they have going for them is they're recovering tremendously well under the circumstances. And when we think about the circumstances, we're like, oh, people don't want to go out. But it's not just that. It's we're not going to work the same way we would normally would. So if I picked a gym because it was right next to my job, I'm not going there right now. Right. Uh, we're not going to college students who would go there and then frequent the planet fitness because it was the cheap option aren't going there. Um, I also think they have a huge amount of, because of their reach and their overlap, they're very likely to fill voids left by closing gyms. So I think that's another upside element that they have. And I think this digital push is, is huge for them. And I think it's going to give you a big boost, but even more, how many houses have you been into where there is a uh, bike or a treadmill and it's got lots of clothes hanging over it or it's in some like dusty basement. I think the best case scenario for the world of, of fitness is mo the most likely scenario, not best case, is a mix. People are going to go on their treadmill, but they like the gym because the gym is an experiential element. They like to go to a class. They like to have whatever thing that makes the outdoor, the out of home experience exciting. And we're likely going to see I need this to do to get motivated. It's really difficult for me to just go on this bike every single day and have this kind of ex similar experience over and over again. And I think as that comes back, we're going to, I think we have a tendency to live in the moment too much. And I know this has been a long moment, but I, I, I agree with you. I feel incredibly excited about what offline fitness is, is going to do. I do want to touch on something you brought up earlier. And I know and this is kind of like a weird, you think about Lululemon buying Peloton right? And, and what happens with, with a brand that gets to kind of gain that kind of access and information and, and, and brand? I think Mirror, I, I think, right? Mirror? Yeah, oh, Mirror, apologies. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, but you, you, I feel like a similar concept is, you know, when you talk about Simon before, Simon buying JCPenney. And the argument I, I made, I was, you know, talking to someone about this recently was Walmart bought Jet for what? I mean, a ridiculously large amount of money. Like 3.8 or something. Right. Was it, do you, if we said just based on jet performance, was it a huge success? Absolutely Was it not. worth it? hundred percent. Did Walmart's e-commerce get much stronger as a result? Absolutely. You know, was the investment likely well worth in the long run? I would say hundred percent. I think you're going to find the same thing with a lot of moves in this space. So people testing out concepts that work or don't work, making acquisitions that are brilliant or don't necessarily work out. It's about ingesting knowledge and ingesting capabilities. And so I like Macy's a lot. I like Macy's because they test tons of different things. Marketplace by Macy's, you know, new concept X, new concept Y. They're super innovative and aggressive. And a lot of things don't work, but they're going to land on things that do too. And they're going to learn in the process. And as the, a lot of these companies start to right size and find that ideal store count number and that right balance, that's where you're going to start seeing some really electric, exciting results, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I definitely, uh, 
we've uh, presented uh, the whole Walmart jet concept as well, that it was, it was uh, their, their, their tuition to Harvard um, to understand <laughs> kind of what was, was taking place there and, and uh, shutting it down years later, simply to kind of unlock their, their core brand. Um, so that, that's definitely interesting. So let's do uh, uh, two more, which we'll focus on, which is the kind of value conscious retailers, which is like the TJ Maxx's of the world. Yeah. They've, this has consistently been a category where it's, it's more about discovery than it is about um, digital, I guess. And, and digital discovery is not the same as kind of physical kind of sifting through the, uh, the, the clothes at, at uh, TJ Maxx. And what's your thoughts there? Obviously, they've done small little pivots, but probably not enough. I don't know what the, the overall philosophy there is, is, is to, to truly unlock the, the digital discovery ability and kind of have TJ Maxx in a digital format in a big way. Um, what's your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like it's really hard to question someone that's, that's, that's performed really well. I think the concept of addressing economic value is always going to be really valuable depending on what's happening in the wider market. There's always people who, who are going to enjoy that. And so long as they're able to fulfill on that promise of like, you're going to find something here that you like and it's going to be a lot cheaper, they're going to keep on bringing back customers. I think the, the big thing when you talk about digital in that space is it has to feel authentic. Like if you have a if you have a sector, I don't I don't need necessarily Burlington to have this crazy online experience. But would it be cool if I went to a Burlington and they didn't have the item? They have this item, they didn't have the size I want. If I could quickly find figure out what other Burlington had that at some like station and then get it sent to my house, that'd be really awesome, right? So I think when we talk about digital, the same way when we talk about physical, it's I don't need. Burlington to be Lululemon online to succeed. I need Burlington to be Burlington online. And I don't need Everlane to be Macy's offline to succeed. I need Everlane to figure out Everlane's offline. And I think the more we wrap our heads around, the more brands wrap their heads around what that looks like, that's when these really cool concepts and ideas are going to be launched and they're going to succeed. Yeah, I remember seeing the uh, the lines waiting outside of TJ Maxx, like uh, it was like July. Uh, it was uh twitter was blowing up everything was blowing up uh um there was clearly a demand there right because it was kind of has the war chest of uh inventory been dumped into the tj maxx's of the world which truly enough what we saw in the retail space was actually uh most of the retailers kind of cut inventory which is why their margin structures are are considerably better today um yeah which is an interesting concept to begin with right because these these new these retail companies are coming to market with less views less inventory in some, in many cases, actually, uh, more pristine balance sheets, which is ironic, um, as they were able to push things out and banks were being, uh, obviously considerate uh, of the situation. Um, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, uh, concept in general. We'll, we'll follow that one there. The, the last one is food. And I think food was a, a big transformation for many. Um, I mean, you saw all types of I call it innovation, but it's more a kind of desperation, right? During those moments of time where you saw the local uh, restaurant turn into a liquor store and the, the, the local restaurant turn into uh, prepared foods um, and they were, they were making it work. Uh, so, so uh, obviously uh, props to the ones that were able to kind of get through, but the one concept that we're seeing is, is dark kitchens, right? And for those that don't know, dark kitchens is simply the, the concept around commercial kitchens in, in proximity of dense areas um, and these, these commercial kitchens essentially produce anything um, that, that that population 
is lacking, right? So if there's 20 Chinese restaurants, they're not going to make a Chinese restaurant delivery only. And this is a delivery only concept for the most part. Think of them like warehouses for traditional uh, uh, retail. Um, and you have brands like Chili's making a Just Wings uh, brand out of their own kitchen. So this is not even a, their, uh, a side commercial kitchen. It's out of their own kitchen. And then connecting and plumbing into the Uber Eats of the world, the DoorDashes of the world. Some of these are making exclusive brands within their apps. It's an interesting concept. But, but when you step back and you look at the non-dark kitchen, so, so one question is around, are you seeing or hearing anything around dark kitchens from some of the ones that you speak with? And, and in addition, what have you seen in the food space in general? So I think the dark kitchens concept is really interesting. I think it's always going to be a piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole puzzle, but again, it could be a really significant piece. Um, even when we talk about retail, think about like, I know this is a weird example, but still, you think about Macy's or like Lululemon, it's all about multi-format. So they have their traditional kind of, this is what we look like in most spaces, but we need to figure out what we look like outdoors. We need to figure out what we look like in a smaller space. I think dark kitchens are going to have a piece of that in the restaurant industry. When you think about restaurants overall, it's, there's, let's, there's a few classes, right? So uh, high end, I think if they can recover and cities go back to normal, you'll be fine. The, but when you think about sit down chains, they obviously felt the biggest hit, though they if they if they're able to get through it financially, they might be really well positioned because they've addressed their weaknesses in delivery and takeaway, and that could be a long term asset for them. Hmm. The best position, though, are clearly kind of the QSR brands because they're built for this. I mean, between delivery, drive through, and takeaway, that's what they do. Um, they're cheaper, which makes it really good within kind of a period of economic uncertainty. So that's a, another asset that they bring to the table. And there's a lot of diversity. And so like you can have lots of brands succeeding at once. I think the really important element to remember both now, and I'd say for the next year or two at least, is how significantly boosted traditional grocery has been. So brands like Albertsons, Publix, Kroger's, they've done really well. And this is something that's not going to change because we know that in periods of economic kind of downturn, we prefer, we, we try to save money on food. So we go out to eat less, we do more QSR, we do more grocery home-cooked meals. I think the muscles that restaurants are developing in terms of boosting their delivery capabilities, their takeaway, even their kind of preset meals, like the idea of, that, of a HelloFresh style option that's led by a brand, a grocery brand specifically, makes too much sense not to happen. Think about like a Wegmans in the Northeast, you know, I'm pulling out my Pennsylvania roots. But that those kind of areas where you can get like dinner that night when you're in the grocery store, that's gonna be so attractive to so many families who are like, I'd love to go out to dinner. It's a little expensive. We, we know we're gonna be more careful this year. And so let's let's take home that too. Like I think there, in all of those groups, there are kind of hopes and there are things that they have to do. And for high-end, for sit-down restaurants, you've got to find ways to diversify for the short term. And then you've got to hope that things return to somewhat normalcy. And for QSR and for, uh, for, for kind of grocery, it's how do I take advantage of this moment in time? How do I use this to launch my next concept to figure out what it looks like to prepare, to leverage a moment of strength to turn into a long-term strength? And I think that's where it's going to get really exciting. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Cool. Well, Ethan, I appreciate it. This was uh, obviously super interesting. We could go on forever. Um, definitely want to have you back at some point in the future. You know, I want to give you a second just to uh, share anything you wanted to share in the last uh, kind of 30 seconds, and then uh, we'll wrap. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of what you and I were talking about before we talked. Like, 
the craziness creates opportunity, right? And this is a unique moment in time where as difficult as it's been, there are huge chance, uh, huge opportunities for brands across different spaces. And it's just about who's gonna move fastest and in the right direction and how do you identify those movers quickly? But it's, I think that makes this a really particularly interesting time period. Cool. And if anyone wants to uh, learn more about Placer AI, uh, how do they get in touch with you? And, and also, um, yeah, if, uh, if they want to get in touch with you, re- reach out to me or what's a, what's a good uh, contact source? So, so check us out, placer.ai. We have a free section on our platform called The Square that's got free tools, give you a little intro to our data and how we approach the world. And if you're interested in reaching out to me, I'm at ethan at placer.ai. If you find me off-putting, you can reach out to ideas <laughs> at placer.ai. Cool. Ethan, again, appreciate it. And, and uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to be here.